theyeshiva.net. Okay, today's class is dedicated by a dear friend, Rabbi Yehuda Applebaum, in the merit of Menachem Mendel ben Vitel for a refuah shleim a complete and speedy recovery, l'arichis yamim, v'shanem toivus. Thank you very, very much for your love, friendship, and generosity. May we hear good news, b'toiv hanira v'hanigla. There's a fascinating story that's recorded in the beginning of Parshas Yisroi. Yisroi, or as he's called in English, Jethro, arrives to the camp of the Jewish people. Of course, he brings Moshe's wife, Tzipoira, and their two children, Gershom and Eliezer. But the Torah says that Yisroi is shocked to discover that Moshe is serving as a one-man educational and judicial leader for a community of several million souls. Remember that the Jewish people numbered, there were males between 20 and 60, 600,000, but then you had people younger than 20, people older than 60, then you had females, so certainly the same number, maybe more. So you're dealing altogether with a community of maybe two or three million people. And Yisrael turns to his son-in-law, Moshe Rabbeinu, as he watches him sitting and leading and judging and teaching and mentoring and guiding the people from morning till night, from dawn break till nightfall, responding to all of the disputes, the quarrels, the disagreements, the conflicts, the problems. Do I have to tell you about a few million Jews living together in one place. <clears throat> you have a community just of a few hundred families, and rabbis are quite busy and stressed. Here you're dealing with the entire Klal Yisrael in one place, and Yisra can't believe it. He says to Moshe Rabbeinu, What is this that you're doing to the people? Why are you sitting alone? And the whole nation stands with you from morning till night. Moshe Rabbeinu responds, and he says, in his gracious, sacred words, The nation comes to me because they're seeking God. They're searching for Hashem. Any issue, any dilemma, they come to me. I'm the one who judges between a person and his friend, his colleague. I also have to teach them and let them know the laws of Hashem, the laws of Hashem and his lessons, his teachings, his Torah. So his father-in-law Yisra uses faithful words when he says, What you are doing is not good. It's not good. Novoil Tibal, you are going to wither away. You're going to Khalila decompose. You will not be able to survive. You're going to rot. Rashi says you're going to rot. You're going to decompose. You and the people, both. Nobody will be able to deal with such a situation. It's simply an unsustainable system that's going to destroy everybody. Kaved Mimcha Dover. This is too heavy. This is a load that is beyond you. 
You're simply not capable of doing this alone. It's unbearable. It's too much. It's going to destroy you. You're going to wither away. And Yisrael then intervenes and says, listen to me and let me give you advice. First recorded, first recorded event in history, not the last, when a father-in-law tells the son-in-law how to do it correctly. And what's his advice? His advice doesn't seem so complicated. We call it delegation. <laughs> we call it middle management. We call it hiring, bringing in people to be able to support you, to be able to help you, to be able to ease the burden on, to, to ease your burden so you don't have to do it all alone. Yisroi suggests that Moshe Rabbeinu appoints from among the Jewish people, capable people, Anshei people of strong character, of valor, of dignity, Yirei people who are God-fearing, they care for truth more than anything else. Oh, it's working? Hello. Hello, hello. I turned the volume down, but I'm going to adjust. Okay, Gewaldik. People of truth, Anshe Emes, people who care for truth. Soine Betza, that's a big one. People who abhor money. Abhor money, of course, doesn't mean that they don't need money, but abhor money means they abhor when money becomes... Uh, very good, thank you, thank you. When money becomes the main factor in how to decide truth. And he wants that Moshe Rabbeinu should appoint these people to manage, to help govern, to help mentor, to help handle disputes and quarrels among a few million Jews who are living in the Midbar, living in the desert. He suggests that Moshe appoints captains of a thousand, captains of a hundred, captains of fifty, captains of ten. So the people themselves would be entrusted with the application of the divine law. Moshe will deal with everything gigantic. If there's something very big, very difficult, they don't know what to do, they'll come to Moshe. Moshe will also be the one who will teach the Torah, he will teach the laws. But when it comes to a specific dilemma, a particular question, a conflict between two people who are neighbors, and the question is, right, who uses the string for the laundry, right? Remember those conflicts in the bungalow colonies? Do they really have to go to Moshe Rabbeinu? They could be a local, a local presence where these things are handled. And how does the Torah conclude the story? The Torah concludes the story by Yishma Moshe Lekol Chosnei. Moshe listened to his father-in-law Vayas Kol Hashamar. He implemented everything that he told him to do. When Yisrael told him, do this, delegate to these people, they will ease your burden. And if you do it, Yisrael told him at the end, you'll be able to survive. You'll be able to function. You'll be able to do your job. And the whole nation will be able to survive in peace. Moshe implements it. Now, before we get any further, I just think it's always important to point out a very profound and simple and obvious, important, but not always an easy lesson. And that is, very often, if you would imagine this scene, you have Moshe Rabbeinu. He's the prophet of Hashem. The Rambam calls Moshe Rabbeinu, Mifchar Minha Nushi, the greatest that human civilization has ever produced. Moshe is a prophet. Moshe is the one who liberated the people. 
He has proven himself. He has taken them out of Egypt at this point. They have already crossed the sea. Yisrael comes and arrives. And the father-in-law comes and he critiques his son-in-law and he says, you don't know what you're doing. The way you're doing it, everything is going to be destroyed. You're going to fall apart. The whole nation is going to fall apart. Now, who is Yisrael? He's not even Jewish. He comes from a foreign culture, a foreign civilization. What would be our instinctive response? Even if I'm not Moshe Rabbeinu, even if I'm a simple guy. In Yiddish, there's an expression, verbisto. Right? Who are you? Who died and made you king? Yeah, you haven't even been here for a while. Yisrael came, it says they had a meal for him. Moshe Rabbeinu made a whole feast. The next day, he already had criticism. This whole society is dysfunctional. <laughs> Most people would be extremely dismissive. I don't even, before I discuss it with you, I don't even hear you. It's too much. You're triggering me too much. Especially that it's a father-in-law. But even if it wasn't a father-in-law, it comes from a different society. Not even Jewish. Fine, I may respect him. I may listen to him. His family, honor of my wife, the honor of my children. He owed Yisrael a debt of gratitude. But here we see something very powerful. Moshe Rabbeinu listens and he implements everything that Yisrael did, which teaches us that sometimes a society needs to be able to receive feedback from somebody who's completely outside of it. Now, it's not comfortable. You don't eat my kugel, you don't know my culture, you don't have my cholesterol, you don't deal with my problems, you didn't go to my schools, you're not part of the, of the grease and the flora and fauna of my community, of my culture. What do you really understand? And there is a point to that. Something, sometimes you have to be inside a situation to be able to appreciate all of the nuances. But precisely because of that, sometimes you need somebody from outside of a situation to be able to point a finger at something that is not working. And instead of people being afraid of that, which usually comes from a lack of inner confidence, when you have confidence that your product is good and that basically you're trying to do the right thing, then you're open. You're open to feedback from somebody who cares, who may share a perspective that people inside may simply not profess. That's in parentheses. But there is a big problem here, an obvious problem that we want to raise today, and it's raised by commentators throughout the generations. And that is, there's an expression in Yiddish, Agastaf Avail, Zet Amail. Let's see if it works in English. A guest for a while sees a mile. Okay, works. Of course, what that means is sometimes you're a guest in somebody's house and you notice things that people living there for a while not, don't notice because as an outsider, you're not part of the, you're not part of the chalant. <laughs> you're not part of the, of the goulash, of the mishmash, of the issues. So you could see things, you could sense a vibe, you could notice things that other people take for granted or have made peace with it. So we can understand very well this concept. Yisra is a guest. He comes from a, wa- a mile, from <laughs> a guest for a while, even a guest for a while, sees a mile, sees to a distance other people, sees some things that people don't see. In fact, later in Parshas Baloischa, it's interesting, Moshe asks Yisra to stay with them, to stay with the people, and the expression he uses is, You're going to serve as eyes for us. Eyes. <laughs> Such an interesting expression. As somebody who comes from a different place, 
Yud Be'ed will provide us with a certain set of eyes, which means with a certain vision, a certain perspective that other people don't have. Yisrael refused. Yisrael went back to his country. But this is how Moshe defines the role that Yisrael could play if he stays among the people. So we could all understand that. And everybody knows that it's good for a school, for a company, for a corporation, for a shul, for a website, for an organization, for a community, to have what's called avad habikairis, or a mevaker. People who could, from the outside, examine things, look what's going on, and of course give constructive criticism, not to undermine or denigrate or destroy somebody, or coming from jealousy or not forgiving, pirgun as they call it in Hebrew, but rather coming from a place of of empathy and understanding, as the famous expression, cherish constructive criticism because that is what will raise you to the greatest heights. A person who's not capable of hearing somebody who may say something that will challenge me, will stimulate me, ultimately means that I'm locked up in the prison of self. And even though I may be justifiably afraid because last time I listened to somebody it ended up disastrous, but if that means that I lock myself up for life and don't listen to anybody, I'm hurting myself much more than anybody else. Great people, people of authenticity, of integrity, people who grow on any level, any level of growth always requires bikaitis, somebody to be able to call me out on something, somebody to be able to point a finger and say, you know, maybe you should look at this in a different way. Maybe you should be curious and inquisitive as to what was going on at these moments. This is something that real people cherish. Compliments are always nice to receive, but they're not not necessarily very helpful. They're helpful because they give validation and they give satisfaction, so they're helpful in that sense. But much greater help comes from people who don't only compliment People who challenge you, people who stimulate you. If you have a personal trainer who just compliments you on how good you look, so you should fire him or her. A personal trainer who wants the person to stretch. <laughs> of course, compliments are important, but I want the person to stretch. I want the person to challenge themselves. It's true physically, it's true emotionally, it's true mentally, psychologically, and of course, it's true spiritually. That message is very clear from this story. But the question is, did Moshe really need Yisra to say this? Is this such a complicated, nuanced... I need your professionalism here because... Uh, and your constructive criticism on how I did it wrong. Not that, I'll, uh, not, that I'll, not, not that I'll be able to do it next time any better. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yes. Sometimes, if it... Atazah. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you, Reb Shmuel. Sometimes there are nuanced things that are not so visible under the rug, under the carpet, you know, tucked deep inside the books that you need a real professional to be able to expose. Just like we take x-rays and we take CAT scans to be able to see that which is beneath the surface. But what Yisrael was telling Moshe here was the most obvious of issues. To say that from all people, Moshe Rabbeinu, even not Moshe Rabbeinu, just a, a regular administrator, an executive, a leader who's, who's apt, who's competent, on the most basic level gets this. I ask you a question. You can deal with three million emails a day? I ask any of you. People have a challenge with 20 emails a day, 50 emails a day. I get a few hundred emails a day, and I don't know what to do. 
I'm behind right now 6,300 emails. So I try to deal with pikuach nefesh issues, issues that are connected to life or the opposite, always as soon as possible. But people deserve answers, some serious questions. That's not three million emails. <laughs> Moshe Rabbeinu was one person dealing with every single Jew. This is what he says, I, I'm, I'm in charge. If there's a debate, they come to me. If there's a conflict, they come to me. Plus, I'm the teacher, I'm the prophet, I'm the mentor, I'm the guide. And everybody wants to learn. And there are issues. We can understand there are issues. Jews have disagreements. They have disagreements today. They had disagreements 3,300 years ago, especially when you put a few million of them together, living in one place, in one community, everybody together. In other words, you had every issue in that place. It wasn't like one community has these issues, another community has other issues. Everything came together. The one time in history, everybody was living together, literally on top of each other. You'd base Mil Machina Yisrael traveling in the desert from Mitzrayim, guided by the clouds of glory. It was incredible, it was amazing, it was divine. But nonetheless, there were still disputes, as you could see throughout the whole Chumash. So even a regular person you would think would understand this. Certainly Moshe Rabbeinu, like come Navi B'Yisrael Kamashi, is considered Raya Mehemna, the faithful shepherd of the Jewish people, unparalleled. Moshe Rabbeinu is sitting there, Yisrael says, you're going to wither away. And then Moshe Rabbeinu says... You're right. <laughs> Sorry, let's change this. So what did Moshe think? What was Moshe's thought initially? And if Moshe did have some mahalach, if Moshe did have some strategy, how it could work, he should have told Yisrael, Sorry, thank you for your input. It makes sense. But you know, I have a system. I'm not going to wither away. But Moshe acquiesces to his father-in-law. In other words, he agrees with him. So now the question is, what was Moshe's initial thought to establish it this way and then have it altered and not by a Jew, by somebody who came from a foreign culture, his own father in the Israel told him to alter it obviously Moshe had a cheshbon Moshe had a way of thinking about this Moshe had something much deeper in mind it's true that he obviously understood that ultimately if you want a sustainable system Authority is going to have to be delegated to leaders in a system of hierarchies where everybody can have access and everything can be dealt with with efficiency and professionalism and in due time. But nonetheless, Moshe recognized the flaw in such a system and he wanted to guide the nation, at least for some period, at least for a short period, in a particular way. Something was bothering Moshe about the history suggestion. It's not something he would jump into or he would embrace, even though he understood it, and that's why he surrendered to Yisrael. And he had God's consent for it. Yisrael told him, you have to ask Hashem. He had Hashem's consent. But he wouldn't embrace it immediately on his own. It had to come from Yisrael. There was something that bothered Moshe. There was something that perturbed Moshe. It was almost like he had to make a statement. Even if things were changed afterwards, and they were changed. But Moshe had to make a statement. The statement was that he alone is judging the entire nation. But why? Yisrael's system seems perfect. It's called a hierarchy. Practically speaking, not everybody is a Moshe Rabbeinu. Not everybody knows everything. Not everybody can be an expert on every field of dispute. You need middle management, they call it. So you have courts, you have judges, 
You have mentors who can deal with smaller groups and localized conflicts. Everybody has to teach every single Jew. You need the prime minister of a country, (laughs) the prime minister of a country, or the president of a country to deal with every single conflict in court. It's not sustainable. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a very logical concept. I want the prime minister of Israel (laughs) to deal with every single conflict in Israel. (laughs) Why did Moshe view, Lahavdal, why did Moshe view, not Lahavdal, why did Moshe view delegation of his authority as a regrettable concession? Why is it not ideal? What was Moshe's perspective and how did he think it could be sustained, if at all? When it comes to Torah, it's always very cohesive. We say in the morning, you see conflict, and then you need a third Pasek to be able to show you how paradoxes merge together. There's another scene much later. It's, this is in Shmois in Yisrael, much later in the book of Numbers, in Bamidbar and Parshas Baloischa. And over there what happens is, it's the only moment we find Moshe surrendering to despair, to the point that he asks Hashem, to kill him. And what happens is the nation revolts and says, we don't have food, we're starving, we remember the fish that we used to eat in Egypt, and now our souls are dry. All we have is the manna, which is not food that is very pleasing or appealing. And they're all sobbing and crying about how horrible their life is in this desert. Moshe Rabbeinu at this moment is devastated. He tells Hashem, I, I don't know how to lead this people. And if this is what you want, then just take my life, kill me, give, give my position to somebody else. Let me not face my own ruin, my own destruction. It's the one time in the whole Chumash that Moshe Rabbeinu asks for his life to be taken. And again, I'm going to add something in parentheses. Some people don't often realize what leaders go through. We sometimes look up at a leader, and the leader seems... Invincible. The leader seems immune to vulnerabilities. But such moments in Chumash show us that Moshe Rabbeinu, who was certainly the greatest leader in Jewish history, at certain points asks Hashem to take his life. Not just asks Hashem to make his life easier. He feels that he literally can't continue living in such a state. He's facing his own ruin and destruction. It teaches us how vulnerable the human spirit is, and sometimes the greater people are much more vulnerable and face their own pain and anguish in the presence of leadership much more acutely than others would imagine. Because you see the theme again in Tanakh. For example, Yirmiyah Hanavi, one of the greatest prophets, begs and at one point says, you know, I should have been a stillborn. Everything would have been much better if I was a stillborn. Cursed is the person who told my father, your wife gave birth to a baby. I wish I would have remained eternally pregnant in my mother's womb, which means I would have died in utero. That's what he asks for. David HaMelech in Tehillim, you see how profound his vulnerability is. The same is true, Eliyahu who asks to die, and Yoyna asks to die. These are prophets. These are people who spoke directly to God and heard God's voice. But it shows us that sometimes the greatest of the great struggle with such deep vulnerable emotions, and it doesn't undermine their greatness. It simply demonstrates how in touch they are with the vulnerability of the human spirit and the gigantic titanic responsibility 
that was conferred upon them. It makes them real people, humble people, and therefore people who are truly qualified to be conduits for God and never allow ego or corruption or cluelessness or ignorance to control the show. This was such a moment. And Hashem turns to Moshe and He says, you need help. We're going to appoint 70 leaders to help you. What Yisrael told Moshe in terms of teaching and the judiciary leadership of the Jewish people, now Hashem says you need 70 leaders with you. This is the beginning of the Sanhedrin, the genesis of the institution called the Sanhedrin. 71 people, Moshe was one, and he appointed 70 people who become prophets. And these people are going to carry the leadership together with you. 70 elders, 70 great sages, who are all given a piece of Moshe's prophecy. Hashem says, I'm going to confer some of the divine spirit on you and place it on them, like lighting one can- many, 70 candles from one candle. Even if the first candle is not missing its light, but now there are 70 more candles burning. There are two people that experienced this divine prophecy, and they weren't part of the list of 70, Elder and Medat. Elder and Meida, the Torah says, begin prophesizing. I guess you could say they were caught in the moment of inspiration. They were caught up. It was, it was uh, contagious. <laughs> the prophecy energy was contagious, and it caught these two people, perhaps by surprise. So they're now prophesizing. Yehoshua, who's Moshe's greatest disciple, is extremely uh, threatened by this phenomena, you have 70 prophets appointed by Moshe, but now there are two, two people who became their own prophets. He feels that this is a potential threat to his teacher's authority. And he runs over to his master and he says, Adoni Moshe Kloye, my master Moshe, incarcerate them, imprison them. This can undermine everything. Moshe's response to Yahushua is one of the most uh, magnificent responses, I think, of a leader in history. Moshe responds to Yeshua, who says, arrest them, imprison them. You know, they're impostures. They're, ta- they're taking authority for themselves in a situation that is inappropriate. It doesn't belong to them. And Moshe says, Moshe. Moshe says to Yeshua, and I'm going to quote it in the original, and then I'll translate. Vayoy Moshe. Hamekane atali Moshe says, are you jealous for my sake? Are you envious because of me? Let me tell you about my wish. I wish that all of God's people were prophets. That Hashem would place His Spirit on all of them. You're telling me that two Jews became prophets, Eldad and Medad, not part of protocol. I should arrest them. I should squash them. I should stifle them. And I'm telling you, my ambition is, I want everybody to be a prophet. <laughs> Give me another few million prophets, and I'll be happy. That's my agenda. Don't get jealous. You're jealous? You think I'm jealous because there's two prophets? This is what Moshe is teaching his disciple who's going to succeed him as the next leader, Yeshua. It's the moment where you see Moshe Rabbeinu, in his full splendor of how he thinks. This is not about my power, my authority. I'm the boss, I'm the master, I get the glory, I get the honor. 
The 70 people are fine, but they're under me. Suddenly there's two people not under me. Oi, am I threatened? Am I jealous? Am I envious? And he tells Yeshua, you missed the point. I want every Jew to be a prophet. I want every Jew to have direct access to Hashem, direct access to the Rebbe Nishalalam. Let every Jew f- hear the voice of the divine. Let every Jew feel the presence of Hashem and experience his or her blueprint and design and will in his or her consciousness. This is not about me. This is about me helping every person accessing the light of God in their own heart. There's a famous quote of Eliyahu Hanavi. There's a sefer called Tana Deve, it's a medrash called Tana Deve Eliyahu, which are teachings that were given over by Eliyahu, by Elijah the prophet. And uh, I think it's Parsha 9 or Parsha 10, Parsha Tess, I think. He says over there, I call heaven and earth to testify for me. Bein Ishu, Bein Isha, Bein Kusi, Bein Yisrael, Bein Eved, Bein Shifcha, Hakalafi Maisav Ruach Hakodesh Shayralov. Whether a male or a female, whether a slave or a maidservant, whether a Kusi or a Yisrael, each person, according to his or her deeds, the divine spirit can rest upon them. In other words, any person, no matter how great or small, no matter the gender, no matter the background, no matter the persuasion, no matter the class, no matter the tax bracket, has potential to access divine inspiration. This is why Moshe is resistant to a hierarchy. Moshe doesn't want anybody who has a question, no matter how insignificant that question may be from another person's perspective, to think that he or she can't go directly to the leader of the nation, to Moshe Rabbeinu. Nobody should think, I'm too small, I'm too valueless, I'm too inconsequential, my headaches, what relevant are they to the big cosmic plan, to the big cosmic picture, there are important people, great people who could show up at Moshe Rabbeinu's footsteps. I should be embarrassed. It's a bizarian. It's a bizarian for the Gadol Hadar like Moshe Rabbeinu to deal <laughs> with simpletons like me who have petty issues based on my own petty background and based on my own internal struggles. Obviously, Moshe knows that perhaps one day We will need to delegate. We will need to create a system that works, that is sustainable, where everybody can be heard. And for that, you need authorities, you need leaders, you need mentors and guides in a more localized fashion. You have to be able to have management that deals with local conflicts, etc. But Moshe wanted to send a message to the Jewish people for eternity, for all times, that the system that he's going to create based on Yisrael's suggestion is actually a non-Jewish suggestion. It's coming from the outside. It's not his plan. He may do it. God told him to do it. But that's not the system how it has to be. It's a compromise based on reality of tending and making sure that every person gets heard. Making sure that within 24 hours, everybody's questions can be dealt with. But everybody has to know that ideally, in truth, in essence, what's the right system? That everybody goes straight to the top. 
Everybody can go straight to the top. Everybody can go to Moshe himself without any intermediaries, without any hierarchies, without anybody saying, it's a stupid question, Moshe's going to laugh. <laughs> this, this, uh, this somebody else can answer. Okay. Creating courts, creating judges, creating leaders of different levels, creating middle management is a necessity. It's a necessary reality. But it's a formality to maintain order, to maintain structure, so that lines shouldn't extend for three or four days. But in essence, there's no higher, there's no lower, there's no bigger, there's no smaller, there's no Jew closer, there's no Jew further, there's no Jew more important, there's no Jew less important, there's no Jew more significant, there's no Jew less significant. My question is too small, I am too small, my family is too small. I'm embarrassed to go with this question. That's not a Jewish thought. That's not a Jewish perspective. To maintain order and structure, you need to have help. You need time management. You need people to help. You need people to support you. But in essence, that's about a system. It's not about a perspective. It's not about a hashkafas oilam where hierarchy starts being worshipped, where there's a concept of real elitism. You're somehow more divine. You're somehow more worthy. You're somehow more holy. Moshe says no. Every single Jew, every single child, every single question, dilemma, and struggle belongs at my door. (laughs) Because it has a place in my heart and my soul. And every Jew has the full right, not only right, responsibility, to learn Torah directly from me. The person who received directly from Hashem, the prophet who received directly from Hashem, I want to be the one to impart, to inspire, to teach every single person. Every single Jew wants to know what God says. They can come to me and receive directly. Not through other channels, not through filters, not through other teachers, mentors, and guides. Obviously, it's important to have all of that. That's what Yisrael says, and Moshe agrees. But Moshe establishes that's all in order to be able to maintain order and to be able to make sure everybody gets what they need. But don't confuse system with substance. Don't confuse a system to maintain order with a perspective that starts looking at God and Judaism from a very elitist and very often arrogant and narrow perspective. So when Yisra reminds Moshe that you have to lead the nation according to the practical necessities, Moshe could concede, but not without first giving the message that this is never an essential division. This is not a hierarchy based on real truth, on emes. It's a utilitarian compromise due to our limitations of time and mental space. In essence, every Jew belongs right at the door of Moshe, could go right to the top, to Moshe Rabbeinu himself or herself. You know, there's an unbelievable story. It's brought in Medrash Rabbah, Parshas Tzav. One of the greatest Talmudic sages was a man named Rabbi Yanai. And Rabbi Yanai was walking along the road and he met a person, and the person was seemed very, the person was extremely handsome and dressed in a very royal and aristocratic fashion. He seemed like a very respectable human being. So Rabbi Yanai saw a distinguished Jew in front of him. He says, Would the master mind being my guest? And the person says, of course, as you please. So Rabbi Yanai took him home, and they sat down to have a meal. And Rabbi Yanai thought 
he has here in his home a great, dignified Talmud Chacham, a scholar. He starts asking him questions on Chumash. The man knows nothing. On Mishnah, he knows nothing. On Talmud, knows nothing. Agada knows nothing. Finally, he tells the person, it's time to bench, would you say grace after meals? And the person says, let Yanai say grace in his house. So Rabbi Yanai says, can you repeat what I tell you? The man says, yeah, that I can do. <laughs> I can't answer any of your questions or say grace, but I can repeat what you say. And Rabbi Yanai says, say, a dog has eaten Yanai's bread. The man jumped up and he seized Rabbi Yanai by his cloak. And he says, why did you steal my inheritance? Rabbi said, what type of inheritance of yours did I steal? And the person said that he once walked by a cheder, a classroom with students, with children, and he heard them reading a verse, a pasuk from the last parish of Ezei Sabracha. Moshe has commanded us the Torah. It's an inheritance for the community of Yaakov, for the community of Jacob. He says, according to you, Moshe should have written, It's an inheritance for the community of Yanai. It's your inheritance. But that's not what it says in the Torah. It's an inheritance for anyone who comes from Yaakov. That means the Torah belongs to me as much as it belongs to you. Why are you cheating me from my inheritance? At that point, the Medrash says, Rabbi Yanai realized. And Rabbi Yanai conceded. Rabbi Yanai reconciled with him. What's the point of the story? To shame Rabbi Yanai? Torah is trying to bring out a point. Rabbi Yanai mistakenly assumed from the person's impressive appearance and attire that he was a scholar. He finds out that he's ignorant. So he treats him with contempt. Why should I honor you? But the stranger defeats Rabbi Yanai on a basic point of Jewish principle, on a basic pasuk. The Torah is an inheritance of every single Jew, not of an aristocracy of scholars. Judaism belongs to every Jew equally. No Jew is essentially closer to God than anyone else. There's no room for a superiority complex, for a sense of elitism. And the term is Meirasha, Yerusha, an inheritance. Because inheritance has a very unique halacha. Let's say somebody, a father or a parent, is worth $40 billion, and sadly they pass away. The orphan, the ear that they leave over, is one day old, or one week old. How much is this one week old baby worth? (laughs) What's the answer? $40 billion. That's what he's worth. Legally, on paper. He may not know it, he certainly doesn't know what to do with it. Take a couple few years. But it's his. My Russia Kehilas Yaakov means Torah is a Yerusha of every Jew. What does the word Yerusha mean? Yerusha means he or she could be one day old. They can't read. They can't talk. They can't even crawl. They certainly can't learn. My Russia means it, the whole Torah belongs to them. It's theirs. It's essentially theirs. So yes, some people have the schus of developing deeper knowledge and deeper skills and more awareness. So they have a privilege to be able to teach. They have a privilege to be able to impart. But to turn that into a source 
of superiority complex and arrogance and elitism. That's the antithesis of the Torah itself, which is basically a relationship with God who's infinite. So when you're close to infinity, you feel that you are just a conduit. And when it turns me into an elitist, arrogant person, it means that I'm connected to everything but the Torah. This is what he's telling Rabbi My Russia Kehilas Yaakov. I'm reminded. I know it's not exactly the same, but it's a very cute story. There's a book called The Prime Minister's. The Prime Minister's is a book that was written by a man named Yehuda Avner, Zechreinel of Racha. He was an advisor of four Israeli Prime Ministers, Levi Eshkol and, uh, and Yitzchak Rabin and Golda Meir and Menachem Begin. And he wrote diaries of his encounters and he published it in a book a few years ago, The Prime Minister's. It's a very interesting book. There's a great scene in that book. He says, Levi Eshkol was the Israeli Prime Minister during the 1960s. He led Israel from 1963 to 1969, including during the Six-Day War of May and June 1967. The Prime Minister, Levi Eshkol, had a driver. His name was Moshe. The classic, typical Israeli Jew, Moshe, he drove the Prime Minister. And he was driving the Prime Minister of Israel to a meeting with world leaders. World leaders who were at, were at a summit, and Levi Eshkol was supposed to address them there. Eshkol's Hebrew was not completely fluent, because his native tongue was Yiddish. The prime ministers of that generation loved speaking Yiddish, because most of them came from Russia, Lithuania, Poland, Eastern Europe, Levi Eshkol too. So his, 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 his native tongue was not Hebrew, it was Yiddish. So he learned Yiddish, he, became the, he learned Hebrew, he became the minister of Israel. But he had a better Yiddish than he had, than he had uh, a Hebrew. <laughs> you know, not long ago, Colin Powell died. You remember, the chief of staff. And uh, when he met Yitzchak Shamir, the prime minister of Israel, <clears throat> chief of staff, the joint chief of staff of the United States, he, passed, he died a few months ago. So when he met Yitzchak Shamir, he turns to him, and he was an African-American. He turns to him and he says, I can't read in Yiddish. <laughs> he tells Shamir, you, want, you know how to speak Yiddish? Shamir almost fainted. Here's the African-American Joint Chief of Staff of the U.S. asking him, and he says, I will read in Abyssal Yiddish. It turns out he was a Shabbos guy in the Bronx when he was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he knew Yiddish very well. And he said Shamir loved it. Shamir also came from Eastern Europe. Anyway, so Eshkol is in the car. And uh, they're coming to this meeting with world leaders. You had presidents, you had prime ministers, you had vice presidents at the meeting. And he turns to his driver in Yiddish. And he says, Moshe. What is your opinion about what's happening in Israel? So Moshe says, You know what he did. Everything is fine. So Levi Eshkol says, Moshe, Don't just give me a diplomatic answer. Truthfully. What is your opinion about what's going on in Israel? So in Yiddish he says, The Prime Minister wants to know the truth. So he says, yeah, I want to know the truth. 
So he says, the truth is that nothing is going well. And he gives it to Levi Eshkel as only an Israeli chauffeur. If you ever took a taxi in Israel, you know, the taxi drivers are very opinionated. It's not like in America, you get into a taxi, two hours, the guy doesn't say a word, right? You want to have a conversation, especially before the era of phones, of, of, of cell phones. Nobody to talk to in Israel. You want to be quiet, but that's not going to happen. Anyway, he starts sharing a litany of complaints about the way the country is being run. <laughs> this is dysfunctional. This is corrupt. This is not working. And then he says, and if you're asking me, let me give you my suggestions for the future of the Israeli economy. <laughs> and he gives Levi Eshkola's suggestions about how to run the economy. At the end of the conversation, <laughs> Eshkola was trying to reassure Moshele that everything is going to be fine. And he says, Moshe, you'll see, it's going to be good. The problem is that they already arrived. And all the leaders were waiting for Levi Eshkol to approach him. And Avner says, it was surreal. People are saying, Prime Minister, come, they're all waiting. No, he has to finish his conversation. He said, here you have the Prime Minister of Israel taking his driver's concerns about the economy very seriously. And he said, he doesn't know if this can happen in too many other countries in the world. It's a very true sentiment about the Jewish people. And to his credit, Levi Eshkel felt that he understood it. That the country is made up of real people. It's not made up of certain individuals, who's who. People who make it in who's who have an entry in Wikipedia. That's not who a nation is made up of. And where did he get this from? He got this from the DNA of the Jewish people. And it goes back, I think, to that scene with Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu essentially says, the Rambam says in, in, in the laws of Talmud Torah, he says there's three crowns. There's the keser of, there's the crown of priesthood that was given to Aaron. There's the keser of, uh, of Malchus, and that was given to, uh, to David HaMelech. That's the keser of Malchus. And then the Rambam has an expression. The Rambam says, Keser Torah, The crown of Torah is for everybody. Whoever wants, come take this crown. The crown of Judaism, the crown of truth, the crown of godliness, the crown of Torah, the crown of Avedis Hashem. It doesn't belong to David, it doesn't belong to Aaron. It's, it's Hefker. You want it? Seize it. And the Rambam says, might you think this crown is inferior to the other crowns? He says, no, it's far superior to any other crown. That sense of complete egalitarianism, which is the source of real democracy, is implicated and reflected in one or more very interesting concept. And that is, when it comes to the building of the Mishkan in two weeks, Parshish Truma, about everything it says that Betzalel made the Mishkan, he made this piece of furniture, this piece of furniture, or Moshe Rabbeinu made it, but Saul implemented it. There's one exception, the Aaron. By the Ark it says, V'osu, they shall make. So the commentators say, Balaturim, the Medrash, the commentators say, because the Aaron is the place where Torah is held. And that doesn't belong to one individual ever. Truth belongs to every single person. So Moshe Rabbeinu tells you, sure, you're jealous? You don't understand how I think about things. 
Nobody has more access to God. Nobody has more spiritual wisdom, essentially. They have people who may have dedicated their lives to learn, to study, to implement. So you want to look up to such a person. You want to learn from such a person. You want to be inspired by such a person. But to use that in order to create a real absolute hierarchy where you're worthless and it's all about me, you're missing the whole point. Chazal say the Medrash is called Talmud Chachem Shein by Das Nevele Toiva Emeno. Which means a Talmud Chachem, a Gtoyer doesn't have Das. We spoke about what Das is. Das is real, real personal integrity and authenticity where the wisdom becomes part of your own inner life. So the corpse of an animal is better than him. So the Yefei Toyer asks, why better? Why better? I understand that they're equal because they both smell. Because whenever knowledge becomes a source of corruption, it smells. Smells badly. When anybody uses Torah and religion and God to camouflage corruption, to abuse, to exploit, to manipulate, to lie, to deceive, it stinks. But why is Nevela Toiva Emenu? And he says something very sharp. He says, at least the corpse of a dead animal doesn't walk around. But this person could walk around, can write, can teach, can lecture, can present, can even be popular. But essentially, when somebody doesn't use Torah as a tool for self-enhancement, for personal refinement, to realize that if Hashem is true, God is infinite. So the moment I have an ego based on God, it doesn't do with God, it has to do with my own insecurities or my own pettiness. In the presence of infinity, if you really experience infinity, if you experience Torah then, the natural result is deeper humility, not deeper arrogance. Moshe is the humblest person from all. Why is he the humblest? Why can't he just be also humble? Because if you're a Moshe Rabbeinu, you're more humble. You're not less humble. If you're closer to the source, you feel how your eye is a conduit of infinity. So you're more humble than anybody else. More remote from the source, less humble. The closer to the source, the more humble. So Ha'ish Moshe Anav Ma'id. So when it comes to the Aaron, it's plural, v'asu. So Moshe Rabbeinu Zveltan Shong, every Jew is connected to everything. There's a beautiful Pasuk in Eiv, Job chapter 34, Perik Lamedala, the Pasuk says about Hashem Shalom, God doesn't recognize the face of ministers over others. He doesn't look at the wealthy in lieu of the poor. All of them are the work of his hands. It's like a child. You say, this child has more significance to me than another child. We know the curse of favoritism when it's real, authentic. Every child may have a different mission. One child is skilled in this area. Another child is skilled in this area. One child is great in math. Another child is great in music. One child has greater IQ. One child has more EQ. But to make a fundamental hierarchy and say, this Jew is really closer to God, fair. That's not authentic Judaism. We say in the davening, Yom Nerem, Hashavu, Mashva, Katan Vagadol. So Moshe says, every Jew needs to learn Torah directly from Hashem Shliach. Every Jew needs to be right at the shear of Moshe Rabbeinu. Every Jew, no Jew should say, I'm too simple, I'm too stupid, I'm too uh, ignorant, I don't, have, I don't have an education, I don't have protection, I can't get into this seminary, I can't get into this shidduch. To the Shidduch Club, I can't get into this yeshiva. Moshe says, that doesn't work. Every Jew belongs in my yeshiva. Every Jew belongs listening, listening to Torah to directly from me.
And even when it comes to quarrels, it's not only learning, even when it comes to quarrels and disputes, there's no such a thing, you don't come to me, you go to somebody else. That doesn't exist. Or this question is not for me, this question is for somebody else. In Moshe's world, if it's your question, if you want to know what God wants concerning this detail of your life, of course it's for Moshe Rabbeinu. And that means it's direct, Moshe Rabbeinu is the direct transmitter, direct shliach of Hashem. The Imre Emes, the Gary Rebbe, the Imre Emes, they tell the story that there was once a Jew who came over to him. He had a sick daughter. And he needed advice about how to deal with this ill daughter. And he went over to the Imre Emes and he said, I want to consult you. The Gary Rebbe, the Imre Emes, his time was very, very valuable. He had hundreds of thousands of chassidah. And he had a very, very busy schedule. And he worked hard on himself and he learned a lot over the day. And this Jew came over, he said, I want to speak to you about this. So Dimre Yemes says, can cite. I don't have time, I'm sorry. And he looked at him and said, Rebbe, Ich hab Zeit, sein mit mein Mädel, mein kranke Tochter, vor 20 Jahr. 20 Jahr hab ich Zeit, sein mit mein kranke Tochter. Ich tu keine andere Sache nicht. Und ich hab nicht Zeit von mir, ein paar Minuten. He says, 20 years I have time to be with my ill daughter. 20 years I'm taking care of her. That's what I have to do. And you don't have a few minutes for me. And then Rehama stopped and he said, nobody ever defeated me in an argument like this Jew. And he said, come, let's sit down. He said, May Euler, nobody defeated me in an argument. He was a sharp Jew, the Gerer Nobody defeated me in an argument like this person. There's also something else. You know, <laughs> I always know how to get into trouble. One of the problems of leaders is that sometimes they're privy to information that comes to them through filters. Right? You have great people, but they're surrounded by gaboyim. The gaboyim are not necessarily immune to human deficiencies like I'm not. So sometimes information gets filtered. I transmit what I want to transmit. I give you access to what I want you should have access to. That's very dangerous. I can't have my finger. I can't have my finger on the pulse of a nation if I don't have access to everything that's going on. The good and the bad and the ugly. Heaven and earth. If I don't know what's happening in the lives of real people, not fake people, fake news, not people in caricatures and books and magazines, real people. If I don't have direct access, if, I don't, if I'm not privy to that information, and then I make decisions... And then I give out verdicts. And it's sometimes so sad to see how a fine person could be manipulated and exploited because he's trusting. And other people, and by the way, it's not necessarily sinister, but people have a bias. It's not necessarily sinister. Always, we always judge people favorably. Not necessarily with a horrible agenda, but everybody has a bias and a blind spot, and maybe this is how things should be dealt with, so let me give access to this type of information so I can elicit such a response. And that's why people become cynical, because a Torah that's not based on real transparency and authenticity and truth, intelligent people don't buy it, they can't fall for it. So you have people who say, oh, you see what this one said? Then his son tells me that they didn't even give him access. They didn't give him access to his father to tell him the true story. Imagine how embarrassing it is. How, how, how insensitive, how inhumane it is. 
I remember when I was a child, it stuck in my mind. There was somebody I knew, and unfortunately he lost his mind. He was a brilliant, brilliant kid, and he had his challenges. I guess then the mental field was also much less developed. And he would walk around in the street. He would speak to himself. He would sometimes scream at people. You really had to have compassion for him. He had a lot of mental anguish and mental illness and mental stress. And I saw him as a kid. Growing up, I saw him as a kid. And once, this I saw with my own eyes, I was already, uh, I was probably 14 or 15, maybe 13. The Lubavitcher Rebbe was walking into his office. And this man was standing there. And he took out an envelope with a letter and he gave it to the Rebbe. And I saw the Rebbe had a secretary who knew who this person is. And he probably knew from previous experiences that what's going to be in that letter is probably going to be uh, highly problematic or disrespectful and so forth. So as this person stretched out stretched out his letter, I saw the secretary, who I'm sure just wanted to protect the Rebbe from reading a letter that at best would just be rubbish, and at worst would be a letter that would contain truths based on hallucinations, and maybe even very disrespectful comments and remarks. So he, he hopped, he hopped the letter out of the, he hopped this person's hand to take the letter, you know, he'll pass the letter on to the Rebbe. And I'll never forget the Lubavitcher Rebbe looked at this secretary with such a gaze. It was so sharp. I got scared. I didn't have, I was just watching. He looked at him. He didn't say anything, but it was almost like, dare not mix in to my business. Know your job. And he stretched out his hand and he took the letter from this person. I don't know what it said in the letter. And I saw how the person behaved in the streets. He's already had in this person. But it was a very profound lesson. If you want to be a leader, you need direct access to truth. Truth is not always comfortable. Truth is not always rosy. Truth is not always nice. You need direct access to truth. Moshe wanted that direct access. Of course. He appointed trust, trustworthy people. Yisrael wasn't telling him to appoint people who are biased and people who are corrupt and people who have big egos and people who have protectia and people who you can bribe. Chas v'shalom. Then there's nothing to talk about. Then you're just destroying anything that has to do with authenticity. He wanted me to, to appoint Anshei Chayel, Anshei Emes, Yireh Lekim, Soine Betza, people who hate money. Where are you going to find that? Right? As somebody once said, where are we going to find somebody who's a Soine Betza? Where are you going to find somebody who hates money? And the response was, Fagelt kem and If you have enough money, you can buy that too. For enough money, I'll start hating money. <laughs> no problem. So even if Moshe acquiesces to Yisrael, it's about formal maintenance. Never to be confused with the essential system of how Judaism views God, views Moshe, views Torah, and most importantly, views every single Jew. There's a very interesting Mishnah. It just shows you the thought process of our sages. There's an interesting Mishnah, Meseches Adias, chapter 1, Mishnah 3. It speaks about a, lot, a huge debate, how a mikvah becomes disqualified through mayim she'uven, through water that is not natural rainwater, but water that is processed through sinks, etc. 
how a mikveh gets disqualified, how much of that water. And there's a huge argument between Shammai and between Hillel. It's one of the few arguments between Shammai and Hillel themselves. Not base Shammai and base Hillel, but Hillel and Shammai. Each one had his perspective. Shammai had his perspective, and Hillel had his perspective. And then the Mishnah continues. The sages say they're both wrong. The verdict is not like either. It's not like that. How do they decide the verdict? So the Mishnah says, who decided the verdict? Two weavers who worked at the dung gate. Shnei Gardayim, two weavers who worked at the Shar Ha'ashpois Yerushalayim. I don't know if you ever uh, saw the various gates, but there's the dung gate in Jerusalem. It's called Shar Ha'ashpois, Shar Ha'ashpois, from the word Ashpa. Two weavers, menial workers who worked there. They came and they said, we once heard from Shmaya and Avtalian that if you have three lugim of Mayim Sha'uvin that falls into a mikveh, that's still being filled up, it disqualifies the mikveh. And that became the halacha. So the halacha comes from two weavers who worked at the dung gate of Jerusalem. This embodies, it represents, There's no essential, essential distinction, essential difference. I may have once told you a story. It's a very, very, uh, I think it really captures, it captures this message. There was a Jew, his name was Reb Monye Mazenson. He was a Russian Jew, he was a Talmud Chacham, he was a great Torah scholar. He was also very successful in business. He was a diamond merchant and a very successful one. And though he spent most of his time studying and in communal affairs, but he did very well in business. And he was a chassid, a disciple of the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe known as the Rashab. The Rebbe Rashab, Rebbe Shalom Doiv Bershleyerson, who passed away in 1920, business. And each year he would come for Yom Tif. He would give the Rebbe a gift, the most beautiful diamond that he managed to obtain that year, that the Rebbe could use for any one of his tzedakahs, any one of his charity purposes, he could use this diamond for. This was his custom and tradition every year. One year he came, and he arrived. There was a system known as Yechidas going into the Rebbe for a private audience, and in front of him was a very simple Jew. Somebody who was known as just a very simple, fine, God-fearing Jew, he went in in front of him, and he was there in the Rebbe's room for a very long time. This Jew left, and now it was Reb Munya Mazenson's turn to come in. He went in, and he was, the Rebbe kept him there for a few minutes, and he left. And as he related the story, he said, I felt resentful. I'm a very accomplished person, very influential, very affluent, a Baltsura, a Bardas. He was a great man. And me, he gave five minutes. The person in front of me <laughs> was there for such a long time and the person was known as a very simple Jew. He didn't say anything. It was his Rebbe, but he kept in his heart. He felt, he felt very uncomfortable. After Yom Tif, it was time to say goodbye. He came in with his diamonds and he gives the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, his diamond. And he says, this is a beauty I have for you this year. Azoinsen Azalchis. It's extremely expensive. You'll be able to use it and get a lot of money to give it stocker. And the Rebbe looks at it and he positions it in this part of the hand, this part of the hand. He turns it around. He says, the godless. I don't see the beauty of the stone. So he starts pointing out and he says, let me explain to you. 
and he explains he's a diamond connoisseur. And the Rebbe looks again, he says, I don't see the greatness. And after a few lessons, he finally gets frustrated. He said, Rebbe, Rebbe, you have to be an expert. The Rebbe Rashab smiles, and he says, Emes, and when it comes to souls, you also have to be an expert. You're a connoisseur of diamonds. I'm a connoisseur of souls. And Ramanya understood this was a response to the grudge he was carrying in his chest, which is never good for a relationship because of the Rebbe's behavior that night. We don't know about souls. How, who knows about souls? The soul is greater. The, stro- the soul is smaller. A soul is a chelekelekami mal. It's a piece of God. In its source, all souls are one. They're all infinity. Even if the souls manifest themselves and are embodied, we don't know about the depths of souls. We always have to have awe and reverence. And people who have the privilege to study more Torah are supposed to be people who are more sensitive to souls, not less sensitive to souls. Real Torah creates so much deeper humility. That's what Moshe, the first leader and the first transmitter of Torah was saying. I'm here for every person all the time, from morning to night, every lesson, every shear, every dilemma, every conflict, every woman, every child, every man, young, old, senior citizen, a teenager, child, adult, even a baby. Me, all Moshe, everybody's equal. Yisrael said, it's not practical. Okay, Moshe said, so let's be practical. But the practicalities will not take away from how the system is essentially, because even after Moshe introduces the system based on Yisrael, the Torah still says, but you have to know how Moshe set it up. So that even now, when there are courts and there are judges, and not everybody could run directly to Moshe Rabbeinu, but the system remains essentially the same. Nobody owns anybody else. Nobody owns Torah. Nobody owns God. Nobody owns people. Nobody's superior to other people who are inferior. In fact, the prophet Yirmiyah, in chapter 31, the end of Yirmiyah, he describes what Mashiach is going to look like, the times of Mashiach. What does he say? Nobody will teach anyone. Really? What's going to happen to all of our jobs? Nobody will teach his friend. Nobody will teach his brother Lamer saying, Come, let me teach you about God. It won't happen. Why? Because everybody will know me. From the smallest to the greatest. And the emphasis is, Me. When it comes to me, Everybody knows in the same way. When it comes to other levels of manifestations, there are different skills and different minds and different hearts that are sensitive to different realities. But I see when it comes to atzmos, when it comes to the essence, kulam yaydu I see. Everybody has exactly the same access. Because either you're part of it, and then you have access, and if you're not part of it, my skills and ego won't get me closer to it. Now you might ask, but Sof calls Sof. Let's say Moshe is right, but it's unsustainable. So three million emails a day. And remember, the same amount of WhatsApps a day. The same amount of texts a day. 
Same amount of telephone calls a day. Not everybody uses WhatsApp in the desert. Huh? You forgot about letters. Oh, letters, right. I forgot. I forgot there used to be something called a letter, right? (laughs) Aleya Mashalem, right? You remember? With a stamp, with an address, you opened it up, you read it more than once. You cherished it, you put it back in the envelope, you opened it up again at night and you read it. Huh? You sat down to write an answer and you wrote it again. The person got it three months later. So you could say, Moshe was just planning to do this for five days, for six days, for, 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 for what, a year, half a year? So the truth is, there's one last point. With this we finish. And this is a title from the Maggot of Mizrich. And he says, there's something grammatically very strange. Yisrael asks Moshe, what are you doing? Why are you sitting alone? And Moshe says, they're coming to search for God. Then Moshe uses these words, I quote, listen carefully. If they have an issue, he comes to me. You hear the problem in English? If they have an issue, it should be, they come to me. Not he comes to me. Right? Or not And then he says, And I judge between a man and his friend. So if you're judging between these two people, they should both be there. So Magad of Mizrich says something beautiful. He says there's two types of questions that people have. They used to say, why is it that when you have a dintaira, a, a woman has a chvesa, a chicken. In the olden days you had a chicken, and it looks like the chicken may have a hole somewhere, and you go to the rav, and the rav says the chicken is treif, and she doesn't even think, and she throws the chicken out, and she gives it to a Gentile. Even though the chicken was a precious commodity in the ancient, in the shtetl. The same man who would throw out the chicken without blinking. When the rabbi says, your friend is right, and you have to give him the hundred ruble, he screams, corruption! The answer is, by the chicken, you're losing money here, you're losing money here. He says, by the chicken, he's not upset, because what's making him upset is not that he lost the money. What's making him upset is that somebody else got the money. You see, people could follow Allah as long as I throw out money. Yeah, the Rav said, the Rav said, no problem. You need new mezuzahs, you need new tefillin, you need new talis, you need new this. Gesundheit. <laughs> it's expensive. We'll figure it out. God will provide. But if somebody else gets the money, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. now it's all corrupt. I'm not worried about the money. I could lose the money. Jews are not so stingy. But somebody else got my money. That's already a different issue. There's two types of people who have disputes, says the Magad. One is, I want to know the truth. And one is, I don't want you to win. So Moshe tells Yisra, you don't understand the Jewish people. You think the Jewish people, their disputes are based, they want to win. If that would be the case, they would both come. When they have an issue, boy, like only one person comes. They're not busy fighting, he just has to find out the truth. If it was about me winning and you losing, they both have to come and argue and fight and scream. It's not about that. They want to know the truth. I don't care if you lose. I don't care if you win. Your winning is also my winning. They're looking for truth. So, when they have an issue, boy, like only one person comes to find out. That's why he says, I judge between a person and his friend. They're friends even in the dispute. Why are they friends? Because they simply want to know how to resolve it. What's the right thing? What does God want? 
Ah, from this you don't wither away. From this you don't wither away. You wither away from the conflict, from the hate, from the animosity, from the negativity, from the toxicity. From this you don't wither away. They're friends. I'll ask, was Yisrael right or was Moshe right? The answer is, it looks like from Chumash that Yisrael was right. The truth is as follows, and Moshe knew this. When people walked into his presence, <coughs> when people walked in, this I once heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, when people walked into Moshe's presence, they already experienced a different part of themselves. And most of the conflicts were resolved. Because when you get to realize who you really are, you know that most of the conflicts are coming because I'm trying to protect myself with superficial defenses that are based on my own inner sense of guilt, pain, shame, inadequacy. To be in the presence of somebody who can suspend their ego and create complete room for you and your journey with absolute compassion and no judgment and helps you cast a light on yourself and puts up a mirror to who you are so that when you are in the presence of Moshe, Moshe serves as a mirror to show you who you really are. 95% of the conflicts dissolve, or they very simply dissolve. And I'll illustrate it to you with an anecdote, they say. There was an old father and a son who lived together on a farm. They were very poor. They had one coat. It was a winter day like today, but even worse. We're in a tent. The father said, I'm 95 years old. If I don't have the coat, I'm going to die from cold. The boy said, I'm out in the farm. I'm outside. I need the coat. The father said, but I'm old. You're young and strong. They got into a fight. The father says, I need the coat. He says, you're indoors. I'm outdoors. Yeah, but I'm an old man and I'm your father. They go to the Rav. They go to the Rav. Who's right? The son says, I want the coat. Kula Shali. The father says, I want the coat. Kula Shali. The Rav thinks, he says, I'm sorry, your son is right. You're indoors, you're indoors, find a way to protect yourself indoors. But he's outdoors, outdoors, what is he supposed to do? The only shelter, the only protection he has is a coat, your son is right. Son says, you see, I told you I'm right. Son takes the coat, puts it on, and they walk back from the rabbi's home, back to their hut at the end of this farm. It's freezing. And the son sees his father shivering, literally trembling, a 95-year-old man trembling from cold, and he can't, he can't deal with it. He takes off the coat, and he says, Tati, here's the coat. And the father says, thank you, puts on the coat, and now the son is trembling. And the father feels horrible. He says, I think you should have the coat. No, 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 you have the coat. They come home, and the father is wearing the coat, and the boy goes out to work. The father's looking out the window and he sees his son trembling and he calls him and he says, you have the coat. He says, no, 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 no. I see how cold you are. You have the coat. But the rabbi says, you have it. So I know what the rabbi said, but voluntarily I'm giving it to you. So now they get into a new fight. The father says, it's your coat. And the son says, it's your coat. They go back to the Rav. <laughs> the Rav listens thinks, says, give me a moment, give me a moment. He goes into his bedroom, he comes out, 
with a beautiful pelts, with a big, fat, warm fur coat. And he says, you know, I just remembered I had this in my closet for many, many years. I don't use it. I have another coat. And it's here. So why don't I lend this to you? So you'll have two coats, one for the son, one for the father. And when God helps you, you have money and you can afford another coat, you'll give it back to me. That's how he solves the dilemma. So the old man looks at him and says, What's his kasha? Why couldn't you do this the first time? You had the coat in the closet for 20 years. He says, good question. I didn't think of it. Why didn't you think of it? So I'll tell you why I didn't think of it. Everybody's energy is connected. Right? You know about the experiments of mirroring neurons? Mirroring neurons, it's an unbelievable experiment. The source of empathy. Right? When you're involved in an activity, they found another person watching it, or even with animals, with monkeys, they're experiencing that same experience from empathy with the other person. So we affect each other in ways much deeper than we know consciously. So the Rav says as follows. The first time, you both came in screaming. The boy was screaming, it's my coat, mine. The father was screaming, it's my coat. What do you think I was screaming? It's my coat. Unconsciously, subconsciously, I was screaming, it's my coat. I didn't even think of giving it to you. But now you came in, the boy was screaming, it's your coat. The father was screaming, it's your coat. So my system started to scream, let me share the coat. So the idea came to the surface. You see, we often view life as victims. I'm responding to a situation. Very often I could create a situation. My mindset, my mental state creates reality. It carves out reality. As a result of the rabbi hearing these types of people, he found out a part about himself that he didn't know before. Before that, why should I give a coat to somebody else? I'm a rabbi. I'm not a gemach. But suddenly, he started to hear a different voice inside himself. When people came into the presence of Moshe Rabbeinu, they started to hear a voice inside themselves that they were unaware of. They started to see a part of themselves that they were unaware of. Moshe, by his very presence, held up a mirror to a person that said, can you see who you really are? And then I suddenly discover, as we all discover, that so many of our grudges and anger and frustration and hatred, and animosity, and toxicity, and negativity. It's coming from my own internal sense of emptiness, of danger, of valuelessness, of inadequacy, my own unresolved tension that's simply expressing itself through all of these types of secondary emotions or defensive emotions to be able to help me navigate this world. But if I could be in touch with my own pnimius, with my own core, which is what Moshe Rabbeinu represents. He embodies the Neshama Klolas, the Zeitgeist of Klal Yisrael, the soul, and puts up a mirror to me. So then so many of our conflicts just go into the dustbin, or they can be resolved very easily. The focus not anymore is, I'm going to win you, you're going to be wrong, I'm going to be right, so I'm going to soothe my pain. 
The focus really is the appreciation of our oneness and that all of us are infinitely valuable. And for me to win, you also have to win. And for you to win, I also have to win. Because if I win and you lose, I also really didn't win. It's like a couple, imagine a husband saying, as long as my wife doesn't lose, this is going to be horrible. <laughs> You're living in a very petty place. You're living in a, in a prison. A relationship is not about me winning versus you winning. It's about recognizing the truth that we're essentially one and that that oneness and connection elevates us to our own deepest place. So this system, Moshe is not going to wither away. Moshe is not going to wither away. Everything will be dealt with fine. It's not three million souls. It's three million frequencies of God's light. That's different. But Yisrael says, Moshe, I got it. But Jews won't always be able to have the ability to walk into your room and have that mirror hanging there, seeing themselves in that way. You have to create a workable system that can be maintained even after your passing, even after you're in the Eil And hence, Moshe Rabbeinu creates this system, but still never forgetting the pristine, ideal infrastructure that Moshe Rabbeinu created where every single Jew is equal, Every single Jew has all access, has all the access to Hashem and to Hashem's first representative and shliach and teacher, Moshe Rabbeinu. And that every Jew knows that if I can go into a much deeper place, I'll see that I'm not about conflict, but I'm really a frequent, a divine frequency of light. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.